0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Wasper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link. First link. Link. This is from The Atlantic, and the headline is kind of what drew me in, but it's a cool article. We booped... The sun, <laughs> we booped uh, it with what? How do you oh, with? Okay, how do you boop the sun? Come on, Jennifer, with science. Oh, okay, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the NASA probe was named Parker and made a historic dive in April of last year, but we're only hearing about it now because scientists waited until last month to announce the news because they wanted a chance to analyze the data, make sure that the spacecraft mm. had indeed crossed into the top layer of the sun's atmosphere known as the Corona. NASA finally declared that Parker had touched the sun, which is, you know, a little bit of poetic license because the spacecraft can't actually reach down to the photosphere, which is the layer that radiates light. But even that isn't a distinct solid surface like how we have here on Earth, which is why we have quotation marks around touch the sun. So that's why we're saying booped it, right? We got real close to it. (laughs) Exactly. So the Parker spacecraft left Earth in 2018, and it was designed specifically to withstand the extremes of flying so close to our scorching ball of nuclear fusion and dipping into its atmosphere for a few hours at least just to swim through all of this sizzling matter. Obviously, getting all there took a bit of work. Reaching the sun is remarkably more difficult than reaching the outer planets or even just Mm. leaving the solar system altogether. And that's because we travel around the sun at great speeds. And if a spacecraft is bound for the center of the solar system, it actually needs to slow itself down so the orbit can shrink instead of widen. And the existing rocket technology we have can't do this. And so the engineers, what they have to do is take Parker past Venus seven times throughout the mission So the spacecraft can use Venus's gravity as a brake. Whoa. Hmm. We named this mission after Eugene Parker, who is the astrophysicist who discovered solar wind, which is a stream of high energy particles that flow from the corona at all times and effectively protects us from interstellar radiation. Even decades later, scientists still don't understand the sun and many of its properties, including solar wind. We haven't figured out where solar wind comes from, how the sun manages to heat its atmosphere to 2 million degrees Fahrenheit, while the surface stays a cooler 10,000 degrees. Hmm. When Parker flew into the super hot corona last year, it discovered the region where solar material churns before some of it escapes and becomes solar wind, which then blows away from the sun and across the solar system. Since that first maiden swim, Parker has since flown into the corona again. And in November, scientists are looking forward to sorting through a bunch of fresh data. It'll be doing this until late 2025. We might be able to extend operations up to NASA. uh, But if they don't and Parker shuts down, The probe won't be able to keep its heat shield pointed towards the sun. And from there, it's going to melt into a charred piece of metal destined to orbit the sun for millions of years, the same way so many other objects circle our star. So it's never going to pull a Terminator where it sinks into the lava and like has its thumb up as it goes down. Like, Parker, we love you. (laughs) You know, stay tuned. Who knows what surprises are in store. Next link.
1: Next link. This article comes to us from hyperallergic.com. It's titled, How Does the FBI Art Crime Team Operate?
2: Stylishly is my guess.
1: (laughs) It
0: feels like if they're going to reveal it to us, now all the art criminals are going to (laughs) know.
1: Yeah, they keep it a little bit high level because art crime, you know, it's very mysterious and artistic, I suppose. (laughs) It's difficult to paint a clear picture, statistically speaking, of the scale and impact of art crime. The transnational phenomenon spans forgeries, fakes, money laundering, illicit trafficking, illicit excavation, and can be intertwined with other forms of organized crime such as drug smuggling and arms trafficking as well. An annual report released by the International Criminal Police Organization, Interpol, indicates that in 2020, the organization's 72 member countries seized a whopping 854,742 cultural materials. Wow. Mm. So Italy was the first country to establish a specialized team to address the issue, founding its Carabinieri Art Squad, which now boasts (laughs) some 300 members. In 1969, prior to the landmark 1970 UNESCO Convention, an international law against the trafficking of looted cultural objects. Despite the United States' status as an art market leader with a 42% share of the global pie today, the FBI art crime team wasn't founded until 2004. Wow. The small program crystallized in response to the looting of some 15,000 antiquities from the National Museum of Baghdad in April 2003, amid the chaos and devastation fomented by the U.S.-led invasion Mm -hmm. of Iraq. The art crime team is headquartered in Washington, D.C. and situated in the FBI Criminal Investigative Division's Transnational Organized Crime Global Section. Or Tokus, which was not included. It's just I wanted to acronym it. That's what okay. it would be.
0: Yeah, we know <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the team started out with eight part-time agents and now has grown to 22 members, a mix of part-time and full-time employees spread throughout the country, with paired agents stationed in larger cities such as New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia. Since its inception, the team has recovered more than 20,000 objects valued at over $900 million, Ooh. says FBI Supervisory Special Agent Randolph J. the Fourth, who manages the FBI art crime program.
0: Of course he does. They don't let you have <laughs> yeah. that job unless you're at least a third, preferably more like a sixth or a seventh.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it's Mm going to go through his entire family and then we'll solve all the art crime. That's what's required. Right. (laughs) Um, So the 2004 date is a bit misleading in the sense that the FBI has been working art crime matters for decades, says FBI Special Agent Chris McKeogh. McKeogh has been with the art crime team for seven years and worked everything from money laundering cases to shipwreck cases. He has recovered an estimated 4,000 items himself, though he notes that the process of recovery is intrinsically collaborative, involving tipsters, auction house and museum contacts, academic experts, prosecutors, and law enforcement colleagues at home and abroad. McKeogh says that the FBI has been heavily involved with counteracting art crime since the 60s, adding that he has an active case from 1962.
0: Hmm, I don't know that I'd brag about that. That doesn't sound like <laughs> <right>. <laughs>
1: It's like, you know, the murder that never went solved, and you can't stop thinking about it, but it's like a (laughs) Monet or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So art crime has, of course, existed from time immemorial, since the troika of art, crime, and property was first conceptualized. In the 1970s, however, the notion of art as an alternative investment vehicle and its own asset class took off, making art a more widely desirable steal. In the 1980s and 90s, the art market became increasingly globalized, and prices climbed to new heights. Those decades witnessed a spike in residential thefts of artworks from high-rises in Manhattan, says McKeogh as well as smash-and-grab thefts targeting Madison Avenue galleries. Mm. Someone would pull up in a car, grab a $300,000 artwork, and run back out.
0: (laughs) Wow.
1: These days, widely accessible databases of stolen art make it more difficult to offload artworks thieved in this brusque fashion. Mm. The FBI Art Crime Team's National Stolen Art File indexes institutional and residential thefts stretching several decades back. If a potential buyer suspects a bad actor or encounters a questionable claim or eyebrow-raising gap in a work's ownership history, that person can easily consult the database to confirm whether the object in question is registered as stolen. Hmm. Today, the National Stolen Art File encompasses over 5,000 items ranging from the more expected drawings, paintings, and sculptures to vintage microscopes, sacred doors, ancient astrolabes, and rare stamps.
2: What on earth is a sacred door?
1: Yeah, I'm very curious what that means. I mean, I guess it's just a door that they lifted out of a sacred place, and the door's sacred too because of that? (laughs) Or we've got (laughs) Um, like
2: metaverse entry points that are very heavily guarded, right? Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The FBI art crime team maintains a public top 10 art crimes list inspired by the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list, which Hmm. has been around since 1950. Topping the list are artifacts looted from Iraq in 2003, many of which have been recovered and repatriated, though thousands of returns remain outstanding, and the infamous Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, which involved the theft of an estimated $500 million worth of paintings in a single night in 1990. Wow. Despite the museum's offer of a $10 million reward, the crime remains unsolved more than three decades later. (laughs) Wow. Not that I approve of, you know, crime or especially <laughs> right. art crime, but can you imagine being the people that got away with that? <laughs> yeah. Like, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And they're in a all a just way. rolled
0: up somewhere. And, yeah. ju- you know, they don't necessarily know what to do with them
2: yet. They're just
1: holding <laughs> on to them. Yeah. I don't know. I guess after a certain point, you just do it for the story, which you can never tell anybody until or, your dying day. Like, right?
2: maybe it's just the art too i mean people can right, have
0: maybe gri- it's hanging in their bathroom
1: yeah. yeah they just really really liked those pieces you know and like we gotta have them.
2: <laughs> it's happened before
1: <laughs> so interpol reports that most art thefts take place at private residences though museums and places of worship are certainly targets regarding theft there is also the related issue of illicit excavation from archaeological sites which appears to be on the rise in asia and the south pacific where Interpol's report indicated that 40 times as many objects were seized from illicit excavation sites in 2020 over 2019. Wow. Interpol describes the art market as polluted with fakes and flooded with forgeries, a complex phenomenon involving networks that are difficult to disrupt. The organization noted in particular a rapid rise in the number of fake historical artifacts on the market. For example, in 2015 to 2016, one-third of archaeological artifacts seized on the Turkish-Lebanese borders were determined to be fakes. Hmm. Mikhail says, There's a lot of fake artwork out there. It's just a matter of doing your due diligence and using common sense. Greed often plays a role among buyers. People see an artwork or artifact that should be selling for $200,000 for sale on eBay priced at $3,000. Assume that the seller is unaware of the object's value, and buy it with the intent to resell for a quick profit. Yeah. And it's probably fake, advises (laughs) McKeogh. In the United States, it is illegal to knowingly sell these items, but not to own or display them. Furthermore, the FBI is legally obligated to return fakes to their owners after a case has ended. Owners may want to hang on to works that have been deemed inauthentic for reasons that range from distrusting the opinion of the authenticator to simply liking the artwork despite its besmirched status, And more unusually, some academic institutions like Harvard University have held onto fakes as teaching tools. Mm. Inevitably, with deaths and inheritances, much of the work filters back through the market, a headache for the FBI who see the same inauthentic work. (laughs) Repeat. Yeah. And Mikia is aware of fakes that have entered the art market four or five times.
0: They ought to, like, tag them, like the polar bears or something. Like Put (laughs) some sort of mark on them that's like, look, we know which one this is. We know it's fake. It's it's the dye that's not going to wash
2: off. But Mm -hmm. here's the thing. If it an identifiable fake, that means that there are some kind of features that indicate it's a fake, which is why they keep flagging it, right? Right, right.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it must be so
2: subtle that it's easy to pull the wool over some unsuspecting money bag's eyes.
1: Yeah, the really interesting component to this, too, is that, you know, one of the arguments against NFTs is just they're just JPEGs. But one of the major arguments for NFTs in the future Mm -hmm. is that they're literally unchangeable provenance records Mm -hmm. that, you know, are baked digitally. And so, you know, maybe we'll start to see NFTs get created, not necessarily for resale, but just so that they can be used to track these artworks. And that way, you know where they went, how far back they go, what they sold for, etc. But all that's probably in the uh, near future, not quite yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, Fair and then you get into that whole thing. Like it used to be a scam when you were at the grocery store before they had UPC codes. You had the little sticker with the price, and you could peel the sticker off <laughs> and stick it on a different item and be like, "No, this giant bottle of booze is two ninety nine or whatever." Mm-hmm. So yeah, like anything that you can mark with an NFT, you still have to have the physical tag or the whatever that identifies. Like I don't know. It feels like you can still transfer those tags.
1: Totally. It's it's an interesting problem to solve, you know, like, because what we have already, like, in terms of deeds, property titles, etc., is still no different Mm -hmm. from, at the end of the day, a price tag, right? Right. If you don't know what the actual item is. And it's not like you want to stamp (laughs) that artwork. It's like (laughs) a
2: symbolic totem of value, which can even be traced to how we look at currency and things like that. All these different meta layers of subjective value imprinted. And with the art world, it's all subjective anyway, right? I mean, like we decide something is... Oh, it just keeps harkening back to that Beanie Baby article from last week. At least in my <laughs> brain. Yeah,
1: <laughs> life is complicated, y'all. Next link. Next, Next link.
2: link.
0: All right. So did you guys see the footage that went viral late last year of the gray, somewhat feminine Android face making these really intricate facial expressions? I did not. It's not Sophia
2: with Hanson Robotics, is it?
0: No, no, no. It was it was a close up video of like this hairless gray face that was making these just super intricate facial expressions. The eyebrows were going up, the cheeks were moving around. It was very Mm. detailed. And everybody was pretty creeped out by it, generally speaking.
1: Yeah, I'm creeped out hearing about
0: it. Well, we have an article from CNET that delves into the specifics of that robot called Meeting Amica, the Humanoid. And Mm. the first interesting thing that caught my eye about this is that despite the overall femininity of Amica, including a female voice like Siri and Alexa have, the makers of Amica really consistently refer to it as It, Mm -hmm. which... Feels like a conscious choice on their part to sort of distance themselves Mm -hmm. from that undeniable gut reaction that people have to things that fall inside the uncanny valley, Mm -hmm. which, you know, obviously is a large part of why that footage went viral. And the article notes a few celebrity responses, including Elon Musk tweeting, yikes, and (laughs) Chrissy Teigen saying, absolutely the F not. (laughs) But Morgan Rowe, the director of operations at Engineered Arts, who is developing Amica, seems pretty happy, actually, with their newfound fame. He says their earlier model, named Mesmer, was much more lifelike, with skin tone and hair, And he feels that Amica has been successfully pulled back and is not disturbing because of the obvious plastic and metal construction and the translucent skull. Wow! He points out that they deliberately took a lot of their aesthetic from popular films like iRobot because it speaks to our collective vision of what we on some level already expect that these things will look like and are therefore already sort of comfortable with. So basically, he wasn't bothered by the fact that everyone's reaction to his video was horror because everyone was still sharing it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that's really what we're going for. (laughs) Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they don't seem to be giving up on their Mesmer line just yet. Their website tells prospective clients, quote, Mesmer is designed to be modular so you can remove the head with one click and swap it for another. So there may be play in the long game a little bit, thinking that we'll get used to seeing Amica in our day-to-day customer service interactions, and then Mesmer can be a little farther down the line. As for when that might be, Roe believes we will see Amica walking, or at least standing, among us within just 10 years starting with places like airport check-ins and fast food ordering, where they think Amica will be better accepted than
2: the self-checkout computer screens that you have to figure out on your own how to navigate. I am so ready for this. It ties in really nicely to the whole anti-work movement where bosses are not raising the wage, even though they could. and People are just mm-hmm. not willing to put up with the abuse. So go on, abuse that robot. See how far that gets Yeah.
1: You. But also, have y'all played Detroit Become Human? Because no. <laughs> huh? that is entirely a narrative driven game about this exact topic where androids become so sophisticated that they're almost indistinguishable from humans, but they basically become our slaves that we buy. Mm. And it becomes this huge ethical, mm-hmm. you know, cluster F about what happens when technology gets sophisticated enough that it is indistinguishable from humanity, you know, I mean, obviously, these are just going to be in the beginning, they'll be just dumb kind of robots that know how to emote in a human way. But they mm-hmm. just, you know, deliver food or, or, you know, take your order or whatever. But who knows where this could go. And the fact that they look superhuman. Ugh.
0: Well, and I have to admit, creepy facial expressions are not Amica's conversational AI does seem pretty robust. There's a video on the site of a live interview with Roe and Amica standing side by side, and Amica seemed to really clearly understand when a question was directed at it versus its maker. You know, they didn't have to start with a key phrase like, hey, Amica, or whatever. <laughs> right. It just sort of was listening consciously. And then <sighs> when clearly a question was about what the robot thought, it would jump in. Like, it was a little creepier to me from a behavioral standpoint than the facial expressions. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, you can make... You can make robots do anything like those are just actuators. It's Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. real.
1: But also, can I go on another tangent? Very (laughs) Have you all played AI Dungeon? Nope. (laughs) Should I have played something called AI Dungeon? (laughs) It's cool. Yeah, it's basically like a, a medieval fantasy sort of AI driven simulation game. But all of the input, you know, normally you're like, oh, go do this, go do whatever. Look at wall, you know, pull switch. This is a generic language model that will react to whatever you type in and can construct entire stories, entire narratives. And before it was kind of like, you know, loose and confusing in the same way that we're like, oh, funny, you know, generating these AI generated stories. Exactly. But as they've gotten better and better, they are able to retain more and more information and they can, you know, build out entire cohesive kind of like reasoning that is based off of past language that's been learned. And so right. now I'm seeing as the open AI version four of this model comes out, you can shove that in a robot and use that as its brain, essentially. Mm-hmm. And most people would not be able to tell the difference between that and a real person in just a short interaction. That's you know? wonderful.
2: That spells so much good news for our information disinformation war on the internet. <laughs> oh, I yes. can't wait. Yeah. yeah.
0: On the other hand, it also has a few default idle animations that it goes into when no one is interacting with it, including this weird little Tai Chi stretch. And it accidentally smacked into Rose several times during the interview. So, I mean, that part's a little reassuring. You know, it's maybe not as smart yet as they want to make it out to be, which I think is the key, really, is like if you're on a text-based conversation, it can be very difficult to know if you're talking to a real person or not, partly because a lot of humans are borderline illiterate. But... If you're in person, there's we're not at the point yet where a cyborg is walking among us and we don't know it. Mm-hmm. Like It's still really obviously robotic when you see it in person. And they pretty much make it sound like these things are fully available for your business now if you want them. It's just a question of getting the price down. Roe didn't mention a specific figure, but he did refer to it as more than your house, which, depending on where <laughs> you live, could be anywhere from a couple hundred thousand to several million. So it doesn't help yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. But And he was also very clear about, like, you're not going to have one of these in your house. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of people were like, oh, the domestic cleaning robot we've all been waiting for. And he's like, not really, because a Roomba does a better job. Mm-hmm. Why would you have this fully humanoid thing vacuuming when a little disc on the floor can do it just as well? Exactly. So, this is going
2: to be probably mm-hmm. for, like you said, the check. Workouts, hospitality, mm-hmm. possibly even therapy applications. I could see this kind of moving into maybe Asperger's work when it comes to training and recognizing facial expressions and things like that.
0: Maybe. But there's
2: actually been a lot of studies about this because they, they're always using these facial
0: expressions to teach these kids what does this stuff look like? Mm-hmm. So they're like, here's your generic happy face. Here's mad. Here's surprised. And they found over time with different studies that actually different cultures have completely different understandings of of what a surprised face looks like (laughs) and what a happy face looks like. And a lot of these kids are so literal. They're like, well, if it doesn't exactly match the cartoon, can't it's be not it. a happy face. Yep. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of the facial stuff that they've been teaching these kids has been pretty much pointless over the last couple of decades. But that's an entirely separate rant. I won't
1: go into that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wait for that
2: article to uh, hit the damn interesting curated list before we really dig in. <laughs> that's right. Next time. Next time. <laughs> next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, we're going to switch topics a little bit here. The BBC has a great culture piece in their art and art history section called The Surprising Ways That Victorians Flirted. Hmm. I mean, I'm assuming it was with lots and lots of clothes on, right? there like wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but it's even that much more removed. And the one we're looking at in particular is a lesser known art form that allowed. British aristocracy to circumvent rules of propriety with in-jokes hidden inside seemingly innocent images. But I'm going to go ahead and spoil it. I won't make you guess. It's a collage. (laughs) If you look up the term collage, the Tate's website will inform you that this cut and paste method for making new work was first used as an artist technique in the early 20th century. We typically credit Picasso or Brock with inventing collage, specifically Mm -hmm. Picasso's decision to paste oilcloth into his painting Still Life with Chair Caning in 1912. But they were actually predated in this cut-and-paste, mix-it-up innovation by upper-class Victorian society women. (laughs) Ho-ho! We're going all the way back to 1860, when Britain was gripped with a craze for carte de visite, which were small photographic visiting cards, which would feature a staged portrait of the owner. And back then, it became de rigueur to swap these cards, even with only vague acquaintances who might be making photo collages and dedicated albums by cutting up those calling cards and then repurposing them within painted backdrops to often silly, surreal, or even suggestive effect. Hmm. It became a very popular after-dinner pastime to admire each other's albums and drawing rooms.
0: I mean, it sounds like scrapbooking with business cards.
2: Yeah, but it's like a business it- cards, you know, like we see those with realtors especially, right? They still do this and it's a very staged photo. It's pretty Mm -hmm. much the same thing, (laughs) except what they would do is then cut out that real estate photo and place it in a different situation. Mm -hmm. However, there still hasn't been any dedicated exhibition in the UK because many of these albums are still just hanging around in British country homes. They've been largely undocumented by art historians. And this fascinating trend remains little known to the general public. So... Who knows how much they might not be worth and stolen for. Yeah, you might actually have some of those in your attic. Exactly, yeah. And there are a lot of reasons for why this has kind of been buried, not least the fact that the people, mostly but not exclusively women, who made photo collages were doing so as a source of entertainment for their own social set, you know, and a degree of ability to draw or watercolor paint or do ink work or even cut paperwork. These were things that young women from the upper middle classes were taught, but there wasn't anywhere else to take these skills, right? Like, <laughs> you learn how to do this and now you can make a thing. But Right. Well, it's like how
0: embroidery has never been considered a legitimate art. Exactly. You know, because it's just like, oh, that's the thing that the women do or they make this quilt or they make whatever. But because... They're just making it for a utilitarian purpose. And it happens to be beautiful. They're like, well, that's not art. Exactly just, right. And yeah. it,
2: just like drawing and painting for most of these women, photo collaging could only ever remain a hobby, even though sometimes mm-hmm. it would take a considerable effort. You know, they varied in quality, expertise. An author points out that after Queen Victoria did away with balls and dancing at court because she wanted to project an image of gravity and respectability... The young women at court who had these albums, whether they were watercolor or even photographs, They became super popular because they gave the court things to do. It was a sort of social Mm. currency because you can't dance anymore. (laughs) That's right. That's rude and
0: offensive. But if you paste somebody's face on top of a frog's body, well, that's that's just comedy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And you're absolutely right. Within this article, there are examples of this, and they show cutout heads spliced on the bodies of ducks or monkeys. Sometimes (laughs) their faces could be even smoked out of a pipe. (laughs) And you know, this was one of the a few creative outlets that Victorian women had to express wittiness or get a little mischievous, right? They're super fun and delightful, but some of them were also a little bit subversive. Mm -hmm. There's one example that's in here that I really loved because it just looks so boring. Like you just see a (laughs) drawing room with a bunch of people posed, but when you kind of go in a little bit deeper, it actually kind of tells the story. For example, specifically, it includes the Prince of Wales, who was a known philanderer, And he and Lady Filmer, the author of this scrapbook, had struck up a rather suggestive correspondence. Mm -hmm. And the Prince of Wales was courting her by sending photos of himself almost daily. And this photo where she's looking across the room and her husband is behind her looking straight ahead as if he has no idea. Oh, oh, the drama, y'all. (laughs) Right, right. Right. So if you want to take a look, there are a lot of different examples that kind of go into all of the little nuances that kind of speak to Victorian culture. But, you know, it's it's one of these things where, especially in the Victorian era, there was such a cultural pressure to just look quaint and modest and reserved or grave. But but if you made the effort,
0: you could get some woman glancing at a different man than her <gasps> husband in the picture. And that, oh,
2: the tongues would be wagging, my dear. <laughs>
1: That's
2: right. <laughs> Next link.
1: Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from vice.com and it's titled oral CBD prevented COVID-19 infection in real world patients study suggests. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. So if you particularly enjoy a certain green plant, which (laughs) is very easy to get a medicinal license for in certain states. Uh, this may be good news for you if you're also health conscious and don't want to catch COVID, which is most of us at this point. Yeah. Um, so as detailed in a paper published Thursday in the peer-reviewed journal Science Advances by a team of 33 researchers at the University of Chicago and University of Louisville, a survey of 1,212 U.S. patients taking prescribed CBD found that people taking 100 milligrams per milliliter oral doses of CBD returned positive COVID-19 tests at much lower rates than control groups with similar medical backgrounds who did not take CBD. Hmm. According to the study, all of the patients were people who had seizure-related conditions, which CBD is often prescribed to treat. Mm -hmm. Of this group, 6.2% returned a positive COVID-19 test or a diagnosis, compared to 8.9% in the control group. Hmm. Among a smaller subset of patients who were likely taking CBD on the dates of their first COVID-19 test, the effect was even more pronounced. Only 4.9% of people taking CBD became infected with COVID-19 compared to 9% in the control group. Besides looking at real-world data, the scientists conducted lab tests, which is good because I was also wondering, well, maybe the people who are more likely to take a lot of CBD are less likely to feel like going out there and (laughs) exposing themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just, uh, you know, having a good time for a little bit. Although, you know, it's the Mm non-psychoactive... Right. CBD
0: generally doesn't have THC in it. At least it depends on the state and where you get
1: it. Exactly. But believe me, if you take enough of it, ooh, you can have a very (laughs) moderate time.
0: (laughs) <laughs> a very moderate time
1: anyways um <laughs> 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 Pardon me. Uh, lead author Dr. <laughs> Marsha Rosner, a professor in the Ben May Department for Cancer Research at the University of Chicago and her team, treated human lung cells for two hours with CBD before infecting them with SARS-COV2 and left them for 48 hours while monitoring them for the presence of the COVID spike protein, which seems a little rude to me, but you know,
0: science. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> science.
1: They found that CBD inhibits the replication of genes required for the growth and spread of the virus throughout the body. They performed the same tests on three COVID-19 variants and found the same results. Wow. Rosner told Motherboard, another publication, As a bottom line, what this says is that CBD has the potential to prevent infections, such as breakthrough infections, which might be one of the most useful applications. Mm -hmm. While they found a negligible effect at the point at which viruses enter cells, they found CBD to be very effective at preventing protein expression in cells two and six hours after infection, and partially effective at doing so 15 hours after infection. Hmm. They also found that CBD's metabolite, 7 ohcbd cbd the compound created in the body when CBD is processed in the liver and intestines, has similar antiviral effect and was non-toxic to cells. It comes just one week after an initial revelation out of Oregon State University and Oregon Health and Sciences University that cannabis precursors, the acids that, when combusted, turn into CBD and THC, can halt the infection in lab tests, which this paragraph really invites you to read between the lines.
2: (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: Uh, a little bit. Yeah. So the authors of that study were careful to note that cannabis-derived products, while a potentially important public health intervention, are no substitute for vaccination campaigns. Mm -hmm. However, in the all-out fight to end the pandemic, they could end up becoming a much-needed supplement. Yeah. Rosner and her team caution against conflating their findings with the suggestion to use recreational cannabis as a treatment for COVID-19. THC may inhibit CBD's antiviral effects, and smoking is bad for your lungs. Without without clinical trials, they also can't recommend that people go out and buy CBD at a dispensary. Rosner notes it's impossible to know what CBD dosage and formula will be most effective at treating COVID-19 infection until her research moves into clinical trials on humans as Rosner says, we can only do so much in mice. We really need to do this in people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We think it has a potential both to be a preventative, so for instance, you can imagine that I'm going traveling and CBD is something that people could anticipate needing, or you go and get tested and immediately start taking it. Mm -hmm. The hope is that it would prevent more serious disease, but we don't know yet, and we would need a clinical trial.
0: Yeah, but it could be one of those things that they sell you for way too much money at the airport. Basically, (laughs) you're traveling and you realize, like, oh man, I forgot to load up on my CBD. Oh, but the bookshop has it for like four times as much as it ought to
1: cost. yeah i mean capitalism is gonna capital yeah so.
2: yeah yeah <laughs> which gives me hope when it comes to cannabis because even in arizona where they have you know legalized recreational they've made i think like a billion more than expected so hope you're listening mm-hmm. capitalism this is for our health that's right
1: there's a pandemic on all right let's take this seriously <laughs> that's
0: right for, for the sake of the pandemic yeah yeah <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for. We are so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include what scientists learned by putting octopuses in MRI machines, long range quantum entanglement measured at last and Facebook's second life, the unstoppable rise of the tech company in Africa. So all that and more can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and like the fact that it has no ads, you can support us at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <music>